0: The leap is also supported by a generous gift from an anonymous KQED major donor. There's this video on YouTube from X17. It's a celebrity gossip site. And in it, a woman in a black hat is walking out of this contemporary white Los Angeles building. She's being hounded by paparazzi.
1: Amber, is it true that you're lying to the public?
0: Amber, as in Amber Heard, Johnny Depp's ex-wife, mutters angrily at the cameras, how do you sleep at night? Then climbs into her black Range Rover. Do
1: you have any comments, Amber? Good night.
0: What makes this gossip worthy is that Heard is leaving the office of a psychologist named Connell Cowan. Cowan wrote a best-selling book called Smart Women Foolish Choices. That's who Con Cowan is today. A celebrity shrink with good hair and an office in the Los Angeles Hills. But it's not the reason I was interested in him. What brought me to Con Cowan is something he did over 50 years ago. Cowan would become my conduit to a very strange chapter in the history of psychology, and to a guy named Gary Fisher, who I've been wondering about for years. This is The Leap. I'm Amy Standen. So let's jump back to the Connell Cowan of 1961, when he was fresh out of college with a B.A. in psychology and looking for a job.
2: I was really a baby, you know, when I met uh, Gary. I was living in Long Beach and I saw an ad in the paper for, I guess it was a psych tech position at Fairview State Hospital. I just needed a job. I didn't even know what it was for. I mean, there were no specifics.
0: Fairview Developmental Center is an institution for developmentally disabled children in Orange County. Cowan was being interviewed for a job in a special ward of the hospital, the ward where the most emotionally disturbed children lived.
2: That first day when I got there, it was uh, its kind of intimidating. I remember when I came up on the outside, and there was this little boy playing outside in the dirt.
0: This was Floyd. He was 10. Before Floyd came to Fairview, he had spent the first two years of his life confined to a crib with no toys. He never spoke, never made eye contact. His only interest was insects.
2: When we walked by, I said hello to him. Uh, He just ignored me.
0: The second person Cowan saw was a girl lying on a bench. She was sedated, glassy-eyed. She was wrapped in what back then they called a camisole, a straitjacket made of canvas. Her name was Nancy.
2: She looked like she'd been in a traffic accident. Her face was totally distorted. It was all black and blue and swollen.
0: Nancy had to be wrapped up, because otherwise she would knee herself in the face. A lot of the kids at Fairview had problems like that. The ward was loud. Kids were hollering all the time.
2: I didn't quite know what to think. I mean, I had never seen, never been in a place like this. I had never seen kids like this. It was shocking to me. And then when I sat down with Gary and he told me what they were doing there, that's when it really got interesting.
0: Gary is Gary Fisher, Con Cowan's boss. Fisher was a Canadian psychologist with a Ph.D. from the University of Utah. And in 1959, Fisher had tried LSD for the first time. Since then, he had come to believe that many of our physical and emotional problems could be relieved if we dealt with them while on acid.
3: What you do is focus on the sensation.
0: This is Fisher being interviewed about 10 years ago at what was called a psychedelic salon.
3: And by focusing on it and totally embracing it, you neutralize it. But to do that, to have that capacity, obviously you need to be in an altered state of consciousness. And after you've had a whopping dose of acid, that stays with you.
0: Fisher thought that a whopping dose of acid might also be helpful to kids at Fairview. The idea was that kids like Nancy and Floyd acted the way they did because of something that had happened to them, some early trauma. Whatever behaviors had landed them in a mental hospital were really just a defense against having to deal with that repressed trauma. Fisher explained to Cowan that maybe very large doses of LSD and psilocybin might lift that defense, free these kids from the trauma that plagued them turn them back into normal kids.
2: They would be able to feel, they could remember, they could re-experience what had happened to them, and in doing so, be able to drop the defenses, not needing them anymore. I mean, that's the, that was the theory.
0: And Fairview Developmental Center was the place to try it out.
3: So I told the psychiatrist, his name was Dan, I said, I'd really like to try these with the kids because... We
0: have nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Of course, there is always something to lose, even for a kid who's about to die. In medicine, nothing to lose has justified procedures that ultimately caused real harm to already sick people. Consider, say, the lobotomy. Nothing to lose can be a recipe for hubris. On the other hand, in 1961, there weren't great treatments for a lot of these Fairview kids, some of whom had been at Fairview so long that their families no longer came to visit them. And the treatment Fisher was proposing... No one knew much about that, either. Fisher was making the case to the hospital that it might turn these kids around.
2: I think the reason that they got their permissions, it was because if we don't do something, these kids are never going to have a normal shot at a life. And it was true.
3: He said, well, yeah, let's try it. So he said, well, we'll start with Nancy, because she's dying anyway. How old was she? Nancy was probably 11. Wow.
0: Nancy, the 11-year-old girl who was dying anyway, I've read her case files. They describe a kid who started out normally. She sat, walked, spoke at the appropriate ages. But Nancy's mother told the doctors that in the years leading up to her being admitted to Fairview, her daughter had been a continual behavioral problem. She was self-destructive. She couldn't be in school. She'd been put on at least five different tranquilizers. Eventually, her family brought her to Fairview to live full-time but Nancy was only getting worse.
2: She was just uh, out of control. She was angry at everyone and everything and including herself. If she could be the perpetrator of the pain, I think it was in some way easier for her to control. But it was hard to watch.
0: By the time Cowan met her, Nancy was basically shutting down. She was in restraints nearly 24 hours a day. She had to be fed by an IV.
3: Nancy was uh, skin and bones. I mean, really, you know, she was wasting away and uh, not in communication with anybody. Totally withdrawn. And so we started with her. So you injected it uh, in what uh, dose? Well, I was going to say, I don't know how much we gave her. I I suspect we probably maybe gave her 200 mics or maybe 400 mics. And she probably weighed... Oh, I don't know, maybe 55 pounds wow. or something, you know. She was a, a big dose then. She was a
0: skeleton, yeah. To put this into perspective, a tab of acid, what a person might take recreationally today, is usually less than 100 micrograms. Nancy and the other young kids were sometimes being given 400 micrograms. That huge dose was the point. Fisher and others thought it would take that much LSD to push Nancy's defenses out of the way, to let whatever was haunting her rise to the surface.
3: You know, it's called the psychedelic model, to give them a big enough dosage so that they can't fight it. They couldn't resist. They can't resist it. It overpowers any ego trying to fight it off.
0: To understand where Fisher is coming from, the mindset that would allow a person to inject a 55-pound child with 200 micrograms of hallucinogenic drugs— You have to rewind your thinking about these drugs back 60 years, past the Ravers in the 90s and the This Is Your Brain on Drugs ads of the 1980s, back past the Grateful Dead and the electric Kool-Aid acid test, all the way to the 1950s, about a decade after a Swiss scientist accidentally took the world's first acid trip while working in his lab. That lab, Sandoz Laboratories, had been giving away LSD to researchers as a potential psychiatric drug. Scientists were trying it out not just on themselves, but on people with schizophrenia, depression, alcoholism. The U.S. government funded over 100 LSD studies. To many of these researchers, including Fisher, LSD was starting to look like a breakthrough. To quote one of Fisher's contemporaries, the greatest invention mankind ever made. Still, pretty much all of this research was on adults. No one was giving LSD to very young children. Fisher had no idea what was going to happen.
2: We were kind of learning as, as we went. Gary was learning along uh, with the rest of us. You don't know what little brain you're, you're putting this chemical into. So it, from that standpoint, it, 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 was, uh, it, it was a little scary to me.
0: The first session took place on April 21st, 1962. There were seven people in the room, Nancy, Gary Fisher, a doctor, other hospital staff. Always in these sessions, there's a note taker. There are dozens of pages of these notes in Fisher's archives at Purdue University. At 10.15 a.m., Nancy was brought into the room. Someone showed her a rose, which she smelled and then tried to eat. At 10.25, doctors injected 200 micrograms of LSD into Nancy's body. By 10.40, Nancy was breathing heavily. Her face looked contorted, frightened. Over and over, she asked people in the room, what's your name, even though she knew them all well. At 12.15, she called for her mother, then threw up. These accounts are hard to read. The kids seem like they're in anguish. They scream, they cry, they hyperventilate. Staff did what they could to calm them down. They'd comb the children's hair, show them familiar objects.
2: Photographs. uh family photographs, photographs that meant something. We would try and get them to relate to things that were, that were real.
0: There was fruit, chocolate milk, a record player.
2: Classical music uh, with that kind of uh, drug is very impactful emotionally.
0: Fisher and his team gave LSD and psilocybin, a hallucinogenic drug derived from mushrooms, to a dozen patients. The youngest was four years old. Some kids had as many as 14 sessions. During one of them, a boy hallucinates fish swimming around him. He walks toward them, says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. It's hard, reading all of this, not to wonder how this could possibly have seemed like a good idea, even back then. Whether Fisher's eagerness to have discovered a miracle cure had blinded him to the pain he was causing whether he was just another scientist spellbound by his own theory. But when you look at the records, something strange had begun to happen with these kids. We're gonna take a short break. We'll be right back. According to Cowan, as well as Fisher, and the hospital records that Fisher kept copies of, several of these kids were responding in remarkable ways. For instance, there was that little boy, Floyd, whom Con Cowan had seen on his first day on the job, playing in the dirt.
2: When I met him, he didn't talk. I mean, he, he, no one had heard him talk. He was just drawn to bugs. When he was inside, he had his nose in a book, and all the books that he, he was interested in were about bugs. He didn't relate to other, other kids or, or to the staff. He wasn't angry, he wasn't agitated. It was like you weren't there.
0: Floyd had 10 sessions with dosages up to 400 micrograms. During the first four, he did almost nothing but bite and chew. Fisher called this oral rage. But one day, in a session, he started talking.
2: I was sitting next to him, and he got up and um, he put his hand up to my mouth. I opened my mouth, and he trolled an index finger around the inside of my mouth and he looked at me and it was the first time he'd ever made eye contact with me and he said you're real you're you're really real those were the first words anybody had heard him say
0: the words kept coming i'm afraid of me floyd said to fisher help me open the door i'm floyd and i'm real
2: that drug had broken through something that allowed him to, you know, drop that isolation and kind of begin to reenter the world.
0: The toughest patient of all was Nancy, that skin and bones girl wrapped in a canvas straitjacket all day to keep her from kneeing herself in the face. Nancy, whom everyone seemed to agree, was on the brink of death anyway, so why not try the drug out on her first? Something was happening to Nancy, too.
2: In the early sessions with Nancy, she would scream, she would yell, she'd bite. She had a, a, a kind of eerie wail that was painful to, to listen to.
0: In the sessions, she would do this for hours. One day, Fisher later recounts, he decided that he'd had enough.
3: Finally, in my desperation, I just yelled at her. I said, Nancy, for God's sake, stop this racket. I can't stand it anymore. You're driving me crazy. And she stopped and she said, leave me alone. I have a long way to go. And then she went right back to screaming and howling.
0: There's a lot to think about in this little vignette. First, Fisher's exasperation with Nancy. He gave her this drug. His irritation with her while she's on it strikes me as insensitive at best. And what about this line, I have a long way to go? It's almost too good to be true. To be reflecting on her emotional journey seems pretty sophisticated for an 11-year-old. On the other hand, I've never met an 11-year-old on acid but this story pretty much checks out in the hospital transcripts. It's a moment toward the end of Nancy's first LSD session. She's been screaming for at least two hours. Staff has taken her back to the ward, and they're about to give her Thorazine to calm her down. Fisher says, Nancy, how long are you going to scream? Nancy replies, I'm going to have to hurt for a very long time. Of course, that could mean a lot of things. Maybe Fisher's memory translates this line to sound more introspective than it might have been. Either way, to him, this moment was a breakthrough, a triumph.
3: Holy shit. There's somebody in there. You know, there's there's a person, there's a live person in there. Amazing.
0: What happens next is spelled out in the transcripts. The LSD seems to have released something in Nancy, something bad that needed to come out. She started talking about her family.
2: She would tell us that she didn't want to see her house. She didn't want to see her mother. She didn't want to see her grandfather.
0: Grandpa, Nancy would wail in the sessions, then hit herself. I'm a bad guy, she'd howl, then cry and spit.
2: There was something that was traumatic uh, that involved her grandfather.
0: Ow, ow, she'd shout. No, Grandpa. Hurt. Bye, Grandpa. Bye. To Fisher, this proved his original theory. But LSD had pushed Nancy's ego, her defenses, aside to reveal the thing that was really plaguing her. He came to the same conclusion you probably have, that Nancy had been raped by her grandfather. Outside of the sessions, Nancy was getting better. She had stopped hitting herself.
2: She would talk to you like a like a person, Uh, you know, not not just screaming and trying to hit herself or hit you or you know, she she would actually relate to you as a, a fellow human being. By July
0: 1962, three months after her first LSD session, Nancy was feeding herself. Her face is clearing up and she's smiling a great deal now, wrote the staff. Her improvement is nothing short of remarkable.
2: It was hard for me to believe what I was seeing because I, I, I just had such a vivid impression of her walking in that first day laying there uh, in a camisole and, and seeing this kid go from that to... Um, she had a birthday party and we had the party in the same room where we did the sessions and uh, she wore a dress and had on Mary Jane's and cut cake and served it to us and you know was talking like a a normal regular little girl
0: in the hospital records Nancy seems to look forward to the LSD sessions she demands them that's how Fisher recalls it too
3: Somebody was there and they were looking for somebody. And so she said, Oh, yeah, I know where they are. She knew everything that went on at the war. And she said, I'll take you down there. Uh, that's the visitor's room. You know, that's the room where you get to see God.
0: Nine months into the experiment, Fisher wrote up a summary of how these 12 kids have responded to the drugs. Here's what it says One seven year old girl developed seizures during her LSD session, so treatment was discontinued. Three kids showed no improvement, or they were so uncommunicative that no one could tell. That includes the four-year-old. Their treatments were all suspended after a few sessions. But there's also Stevie, a nine-year-old boy alternately catatonic and enraged. After 13 sessions, he was able to go home every weekend. A 10-year-old named Timmy, whose only contact with other people was looking up their sleeves, as if to see how their arms were attached who, after 10 sessions, started playing with other kids on the ward. Patty, 12, withdrawn and uncommunicative, obsessed with food, started attending a regular school. Fisher and the other Fairview staff believed they were seeing amazing progress, perhaps a new way to start healing some of the most disturbed children. And then it all came to an end. By 1963, the rest of the world had started to discover psychedelic drugs, too. At Harvard, Timothy Leary was handing out LSD to his graduate students. Psychedelics were starting to look less like therapy drugs and more like something you'd take at a rock concert. Leary and others believed that LSD could revolutionize society at large, but that meant liberating it from academia and therapy rooms and taking it to the masses. The FDA cracked down. By 1966, LSD would be illegal in California, and soon the rest of the country. Fisher referred to Leary as the devil, the person he held personally responsible for ending this golden age of scientific research on psychedelics. In 1963, the LSD backlash arrived at Fairview. Fisher was told that his LSD sessions were to stop immediately. Luckily, Fisher kept copies of some of his records. They're in his archives now, and I use them for this story. But the rest of his files on this experiment, Fisher believed, were destroyed.
3: They went through the files and purged all the files and uh, burned them. And uh, when they were being interviewed, they, just, they said "No, nothing, no work like that had ever been done there.
0: Professionally, this was a disaster. Personally, it was a tragedy. Fisher was certain he had begun to change these kids' lives for the better. Now he was walking away, abandoning them.
3: One of the most difficult things I've ever had to do uh, in my life is to tell them that we couldn't do it anymore. So it was uh, heartbreaking meeting those kids.
0: Five years later, in 1968, he was still thinking about it. He and Con Cowan wanted to go check up on the kids.
2: Gary and I, we wanted to go back and and, uh, see, you know, like, where's Nancy today?
3: I went back to try to do follow-up. Well, follow-up on who, you know? And they wouldn't let me on the ward or anything.
0: Fisher never saw Nancy or any of the other Fairview kids again. This freeze on LSD and science, it would last for over half a century to Fisher and his contemporaries, these were lost years, years in which so many people, so many children might have been helped. There's a sort of rueful laughter you hear in the psychedelic salon, a bunch of old-timer LSD researchers, decades after some of the most promising work of their careers was cut short.
3: Here we are some 45 years (laughs) later resurrecting history, lost history. <laughs>
2: lost history, and
3: think of the uh, think of
2: what could have happened had this
3: work progressed to the last 45 years, you know, that I think we'd have a, <laughs> psychiatry might be a little further along. Who knows?
0: It's not just Fisher. I would love to know what happened to Nancy and the rest of the Fairview kids. Did Fisher's LSD make their lives better permanently? This may be impossible to know. All of the kids' last names are redacted from Fisher's archives, and Fairview's files are all sealed. Still, I had a good guess about Nancy's full name, so I asked a couple of private investigators to try and find her. One of them dug up what seems to be Nancy's birth record. But after that, the trail goes cold. There are no marriage or death records, no children born. It seems very possible that Nancy never left Fairview at all. Even if we did find them, it wouldn't be enough to go on. A handful of kids, 55 years ago, with archaic protocols and spotty records. This is not science. To really know whether Fisher made the right call would mean doing the experiment again. And I think it's safe to say that will never happen. Whether Fisher's experiment was reckless, or whether it was heroic, depends on how you think about science and what risks we're willing to take in pursuit of something groundbreaking couldn't ask Fisher about any of this. He died in 2012. So one day, last fall, I took a ferry to an island off the coast of Seattle to see his daughter, Bess. Bess was born in 1960. She was six when her parents split up. It was a nasty divorce. One reason for that was Fisher himself. He was married with kids, but also gay, confined, you could say, in his own straitjacket. And by the mid-60s, he had begun to break free. But the other reason is that Anna, Bess's mother, had begun to lose her mind, and the divorce pretty much finished the job. This was in 1966. Anna was given custody of the kids. She loathed Fisher. Sometimes she told her daughters she'd kill herself if they saw him. But Fisher had already had to abandon one set of
1: children at Fairview. He wasn't going to let that happen again. He would come down every Sunday to see us. We got to see him every Sunday. To see him without Anna knowing, they had to take turns. Two of us would sneak out of the house and meet my dad down the street and around the corner because when he had come to the house before, my mom would try to attack him, and I remember her throwing rocks at his car. Anna would sit in the dark, chain-smoking, possessed by strange ideas. I'd be talking to her, and all of a sudden she'd say, Wait, stop, and she'd close her eyes and look, and her face would face up into the sky. And I'd say, Mom, what are you doing? She'd say, Stop, I'm, I'm, I'm... communicating with the Venusians right now, the people who live on Venus. So, you know, I, no, I never had any thought that I could save her. No one could. Gary Fisher had a theory why. I found out later when I asked my dad why is she she's so crazy, he said she took LSD. And he said it was like a puzzle piece. Sometimes the puzzle piece just didn't fit back together and hers just didn't fit back together. Her, her mind.
0: The drug that Fisher would later give to a nonverbal four year old, he had seen that same drug unravel his own wife. Fisher believed LSD could cure deep emotional distress, but seemingly he also understood that LSD could unleash it. It's ironic that Fisher died before he could see that research on psychedelics is very much back. Scientists at places like Johns Hopkins and UCLA are running FDA-approved experiments on psychedelics as treatments for anxiety, addiction, depression. It's illegal, but there are therapists out there who offer guided psychedelic experiences as a form of therapy. Conferences on psychedelic science draw tens of thousands of attendees. When he was in his 50s, Fisher gave up on science entirely. He became a real estate agent in Southern California. Friends of his that I've talked to invariably describe him as incredibly kind, but also eccentric or unique. In one of his handwritten notebooks, he tells a story about how one day he smoked a bit of grass with his friends Hal and Neil, and on the way to the bathroom, Fisher met Hal's dog, who told him, in quote, a very clear and strong telepathic message, Help! I'm a man trapped in a dog's body. Get me out of here. Gary comes back, doesn't say anything about it. Then a few minutes later, and I'm not sure what to make of this, Neil gets up to use the bathroom. When he comes back, he tells basically
1: the same story, that he too just had a conversation with a dog. He also told me, my dad told me, that his mother was a leprechaun on his balcony, so. Wait, your dad told you that his own mother was? Yes, it? that when his mother passed, she came back as a leprechaun on his on his balcony. I'm not saying it's true or not true, but I'm just, it's different. You can't really hear it in her voice, but Bess is smiling wryly
0: as she tells this story. It's a glimpse into this sweet relationship she had with her dad, Bess always playing the bemused straight man. Then I'm just like, okay, dad, whatever. (laughs) But in a way, Bess and her dad are similar, at least when it comes to how they look at psychedelics. That these drugs are to be taken seriously or not at all. A very powerful, risky medicine that so far,
1: Bess hasn't needed.
0: Have you ever taken LSD?
1: Uh, no. Hell no, never. Never, ever, ever. Just no interest? Zero interest. Not even no interest. Is like I, It freaks me out to even think about that. There's no way I would ever do that.
0: Is that because of what happened to your mother?
1: Yes. Absolutely.
0: Of course, Fisher had that experience, too. After all, it's his
1: wife Bess is referring to. But that wasn't enough to scare him off and my dad never had a mom that had taken LSD. Maybe not, but as an adult, Fisher was surrounded on all sides by trauma, his patients, his children, his wife, maybe
0: even himself. His response to that was to take this huge, insane swing at the problem, to get under the hood and start pulling at wires that he didn't understand, even when he knew just how dangerous that could be. He'd seen it firsthand with his wife. That's a terrifying amount of power to have over a fellow human. Possibly an egregious amount when you're talking about a small child in distress. I'm conflicted about that. Grateful that today's standards would keep a man from pumping LSD into a seven-year-old. But at the same time, what if the acid had helped that poor kid? How can you not wonder that? This is The Leap. I'm Amy Standen. And I'm Judy Campbell. Nicholas Nayote and Chris Cullen composed the music for this piece. Chris also edited this story. Katie McMurrin is our sound engineer with additional engineering from Danny Bringer. Nathan Campbell wrote and performed the song you're hearing right now. Special thanks to David Blatchy, Patrick Hoffman, and Suki Williams for their research help. Also to Lorenzo Haggerty for letting me use recordings from the psychedelic salons. And to Arrowhead.com, where I first read about Fisher. And to Paul Lancour. Thanks also to Purdue University Libraries, which provided research funding for this story. Joanne Wallace is our executive producer. There are photos of Gary Fisher, Nancy, and other Fairview kids on our website, kqed.org slash theleap. Check it out. Thank you for listening. Till next time, this is The Leap, KQBD.
3: Leaping lizards, is that really me? I wasn't born to fly, Lord, Lord, I was born to creep. So circle your buzzards over the yawning deep. I've all I got against.